According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures, and uh, we have our first Wednesday morning in uh, Proverbs 21. So join me in Proverbs 21 this morning. Moving on to a new chapter. Been kind of watching and see how many chapters we cover in a calendar year, and in the uh, 75 years it's been since we started the Proverbs series. Um, where we finally made it to, uh, I do exaggerate quite a bit, but we have made it now to uh, Proverbs 21. I'm kind of curious to see where we're going to be when we break for a year and we put the series on hold for the Through the Bible year. Um, If we could possibly get through Proverbs 24, that would be useful because we have a uh, a whole section that begins in Proverbs 25, but uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that we'll make it four chapters in a year and four months, but we'll see. God's in charge and He knows what He's doing. For today though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness to, uh, to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this day and the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We do pray for our country, Father, and the turmoil going on. We just thank you for being faithful from Alpha to Omega every step of the way. Father, your plan is being accomplished to glorify your Son. And we, uh, we rest by faith, knowing that we're a part of your plan and you know what you're doing. So we thank you, Father, and thank you for this day. The time we have to spend in your word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you and praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 21, a brand new chapter and a kind of a fresh start on things. Um, we're going to notice a few things right off the bat, and I'll give it to you here in the first point of the outline. Chapter 21 opens and closes with several references to Yahweh, to the Lord. And you're going to spot it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, to begin a chapter with three straight verses uh, with, uh, with Yahweh being mentioned. We do have other chapters where Yahweh is not mentioned even one time, that uh, the name of God dis- disappears in certain chapters. But you'll notice in verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. Verse 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart. Verse 3, to do justice and uh, to do, I'm sorry, to do righteousness and justice is desired by Yahweh more than sacrifice. So the first three verses just hit us with boom, 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 three references to Yahweh in verses 1, 2, and 3. Then you're going to notice at the end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against Yahweh. That's verse 30. And then verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to Yahweh. So it's kind of a curious thing. It does set uh, Proverbs 21 slightly apart from other chapters uh, and other uh, stretches as the arrangement has has come to us now at this point in the canonization of the book of Proverbs. Um, Remember Solomon didn't sit down and write these in this order that he wrote thousands and thousands of Proverbs, far more than are found in this book, and then he collected them and, and placed them in the order that they're presently in. He or some other Uh, spirit-led editor, and then we have more that get added. You'll notice in chapter 25 and verse 1, these also are the Proverbs of Solomon, 
which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And so that's a curious factor too when God the Holy Spirit expanded the book of Proverbs you know, for 200 years, 300 years. Um, you, you take Hezekiah in about 700 B.C. And uh, so for those 300 years between uh, Solomon and Hezekiah, the, the book of Proverbs as it was contained in the, uh, in the Hebrew canon was considerably shorter than it is at this point when in Hezekiah's day they add six more chapters to, uh, to the canon. So different things there. We'll have more to say on that as we get to that point. I think it's a useful study for us too and we'll have some things to address related to Genesis in, in this aspect as well. What was the form that Genesis was in when Moses finished writing it? And then what, is, what are some of the editorial adaptations that were made in the following centuries? Nothing that, that harms the Bible, nothing that harms inspiration. But when the, the later editors take Genesis and, and place it within the canon, um, what are some of the editorial changes that happen at that point? And uh, all by the Holy Spirit, all led by His... Uh, uh, see, we need to have a better definition of inspiration that includes not only authorship with co-authors, but also uh, uh, compilation and arrangement and uh, spelling updates, things like that, that happen in later centuries that is a perfectly acceptable part of canonicity. We don't hide from it, we don't run from it, we don't have a problem with it. We just uh, rarely think about it and talk about it, so most, uh, most believers don't even know that it's a thing. But, uh, but it is, and we need to, uh, I think we need to equip one another in this regard as well. So stay tuned on that. I think we'll, we'll address those things there. All right. Well, for this morning, we'll start with these first three verses that center on Yahweh, the Lord, that center on Jehovah, if you prefer that pronunciation. I was asked Sunday morning, what's the difference between Yahweh and Jehovah? Nothing whatsoever. It's just how you choose to pronounce it. <laughs> it's the same four letters in the Hebrew. It's the Tetragrammaton of the, uh, the holy name for, for the Lord in the Old Testament. And uh, depending on how you choose to vocalize this thing is how you pronounce it. So let's start with the king's heart. We'll get political. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so the blessings we have to understand that water can be very dangerous, can be very deadly, can be destructive when it's out of control, but it can be very powerful and very useful when it's in control, when you're channeling it uh, by your design in your plan for your purpose. And this uh, is a principle actually we studied a couple chapters back, in or four chapters back already, you might remember it in chapter 17. Water is terribly destructive when it is out of control. And I think I, 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 think I changed the point between chapter 17 and chapter 21 because it seems to me that I used the flood, Noah's flood, as an example of out-of-control water. And if I did, then I, I repent of that and I changed my mind. The, uh, the flood was not out-of-control water. The flood was very much controlled water. God knew what He was doing and had complete handle on, on what He was doing and how He was doing it in, uh, in the flood. So I moved uh, the flood down to the, the second part of this, of this point. Water is terribly destructive when it is out of control, but it is incredibly powerful when directed to an effective purpose. And if it's God that's directing it, or if it's man that's directing it, or the blessings we have in civil engineering and so forth to dam rivers and to uh, redirect water to irrigate uh, otherwise arid land and things of that nature, it can be incredibly powerful. And then to generate electricity, 
uh, is uh, an amazing thing as well in the in the modern world. And so uh, we have the the principle itself, which we'll look at the verses, and it kind of preaches itself and goes without saying. But then we need to recognize what the metaphor is teaching, specifically with reference to God's sovereignty in directing political events, God's sovereignty in working in the life of human rulers, when God works in the life of a king. And how does he direct water without coercing volition is, uh, is a principle because that's also true. God doesn't control minds or, or force people to make the choices that they make. But he puts them in conduits, if you will, where the water is going to flow based upon the conduit God puts them in. They're still making the choices that they're making. They're not they're not relieved of their accountability, their volitional accountability before God in, uh, in any respect. And so that, that should be clear also that uh, these principles are true. God does not coerce volition. He doesn't have to coerce volition. It's, it's a flawed view of sovereignty if you think that God's sovereignty forces us to make every choice that we make. That's a puppet master view of things. That's a rigid determinism view of things. That, uh, that it's a flawed understanding. And, and unless your theology demands that, uh, that this is how God operates, then you and I can be much more relaxed about it and realize that God's not the author of sin. Okay, Because if He forces us to make every choice we make, that means God's causing me to sin every time I sin. And, uh, and that's, that's heresy. That's a terribly unbiblical position. So let's start by looking at these, uh, and these verses here. So of course, uh, something that we touched upon earlier back in Proverbs 17 goes very well with what we're seeing here. How destructive is it when water is out of control? <clears throat> Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. And so it's like the beginning of strife, right? When a fight first starts, when an argument first starts, when uh, you know some, somebody says something uh, that you know, triggers a political response and then, oh, it's on, right? Because that's the beginning of strife. It's like letting out water. You know, once you poke a hole in the dam, once you have that tiny little hole, uh, where's it going to go? What's the water going to do? You know, like when the thing busted over the, the, the nursery ceiling a couple weeks ago. Uh, once the thing busts, that, that water's not going to stop. Water does what water does. So the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. And uh, this is the, the words of wisdom here that because water does what it does, that, you know, uh, don't start it. Don't, don't poke a hole in that dam. And uh, don't start the, uh, the strife. If you realize that this is going to start a, an argument, why are you the one that's going to start it? What's your purpose in doing that? We also have the prophecy uh, that Jacob uttered regarding uh, his firstborn. Let me get to Genesis 49.4. Shortly before um, Jacob dies, he gets all of his kids together and he's going to have prophetic words for not only these boys individually, his literal sons, but, but prophetically it actually addresses the tribes, the, the tribes that descend from these sons and uh, the history of Israel in, uh, in, in the last days. So Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Remember Jacob is the one who is renamed Israel. So it's a father with his literal sons, but then it's also a national prophecy related to Israel and uh, the tribes that make up the, the covenant nation. 
Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. It's curious. And, and this, this phrase comes back again and again and again. Always connected with the firstborn is the beginning. Uh, just as Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and He's the beginning of the ways of God, uh, the firstborn, the beginning of my strength. It's an interesting idiom that we see over and over again. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so that's the, the discipline upon the, the person of, Le- of uh, Reuben and the tribe. Yeah, Reuben doesn't have the, the leadership of the nation of Israel. It's going to fall to Judah. It's going to fall to the fourth. The fourthborn son is going to have the, the firstborn privilege. And the scepter will not depart from Judah, as Genesis 49 indicates. Simeon and Levi, they also have discipline here because of their anger. And then uh, there's Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Jesus, of course, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And the whole doctrine of Shiloh is a marvelous truth. The one to whom it belongs, the one to whom it is due. And uh, there is only one to whom it is due. Jesus is Shiloh. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not only does he have preeminence among all the other tribes, the the Jewish people that make up uh, Israel, but then the peoples, the nations, the non-Jewish people, that is, the Gentile nations. Anyway, that's more than we're going to teach on that this morning, but stay tuned. Uh, The principle coming in verse 4, though, related to Reuben, that uh, uncontrolled as water. Water is terribly destructive, but when it's directive to effective purposes, it's incredibly powerful. And this is where I put the flood in uh, Genesis 7.10. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. And this was by design. Not only was it uh, it was the, the floodgates from the deep as well as the water from above and uh, perfectly designed by God to accomplish what He intended to accomplish. Stay tuned for this because we got all the flood teaching coming up in our new Genesis series and uh, everything that people take as a children's story and you know, Noah built the arky arky and all the dumb songs and things that are built upon uh, this. It's not just children's stories, all right? There's doctrine with respect to this. And the pattern of God preserving eight souls through the ark is, uh, is, is doctrinally significant and takes us into eschatological principles. Remember the coming of the, of the Lord in Second Advent, it will be like the days of Noah. So uh, it's not just children's stories and, and, uh, and little you know, jokes about the, uh, the woodpecker and the, you know, bringing, bringing termites on the ark and things like that. All right. This metaphor now, the the actual principle that we're gleaning here in Proverbs 21, the king's heart. We want to be praying. We're commanded to pray for uh, political leaders. We're commanded to pray for kings and all who are in authority. So this applies to President Trump. This applies to Governor Abbott. This applies to Mayor, what's his name? All right, Adler, I think. Um, I don't live in Austin. So this applies to... Uh, but this applies to the, the Speaker of the House, all right? This applies to the, the Senate Majority Leader. This applies to the Supreme Court, kings and all who are in authority. 
that's a long list of, uh, of folks. And um, we're, we're supposed to be praying for them. Like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. So this verse is actually spotlighting not the, not the activity of our political leaders, but the activity of God. What is Yahweh doing? What is the Lord doing? Because He holds these hearts in His hand. And He is not forcing them to do what He wants. He's still honoring their volition. They're still flowing. The waters still flow. And, and uh, these, these human rulers are making the choices they're making. But the turning of that water, the, the turns left and right and all the other, uh, the, the, the channeling, the digging of the channel, and uh, shaping it and directing it and taking it where, where He wants it to go. That's what God does. He turns it wherever He wishes. And so we have these principles. And this becomes critical. This metaphor references the hand of God in directing human history as He turns the hearts of political rulers. Shaping their hearts. Shaping the direction where the water's going to flow. And placing circumstances in the way. So this is how you dig a channel, right? You're digging a channel or you're, I mean the Romans were, were marvelous at this and, and building their aqueducts and, and powering water to, to drive their wheels, to drive, you know, they, they learned uh, and, and before them the Greeks and the Egyptians and so forth. The Egyptians uh, lived in a desert but the Nile River was able to irrigate when they would dig channels. And uh, the, the power of water to turn wheels, the power of water you know, animals would get tired, animals would, would have to be fed, but that river just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing and, and you think about it, the, the power of water to turn wheels, to grind mills and to do the, uh, uh, the things that needed to be done. Alright, so the idea of uh, political leaders. Let's start with Genesis 20. We'll get there's several examples here and they're all worth looking at. Genesis 20 verse 6, let me back up a little bit because this is um, Abraham's second failure to lie about his wife. And in the first failure, years prior, back in chapter 12, he was in Egypt and lying about Sarah, saying she's my sister. And, uh, and then the, the uh, did not work out well because uh, Pharaoh took her, took her into his harem, and then it was only the grace of God that, that got her back. And then I believe the divine judgment on Abraham and his house meant a, a tremendous delay in the, uh, the arrival of Isaac, the birth of Isaac and the confirmation of the promise. But now he's going to do it again. Years later he's going to tell the same lie in a different, to a different king in a different land, but he's going to tell the same lie. And, and what, what do you think is going to result? I mean you're doing the same thing, you think you're going to get different results? That's crazy. So Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarai, Sarah, his wife, and here's the thing, back then they were Abram and Sarai, now they're Abraham and Sarah. They've already failed with, uh, with Hagar in the birth of, of uh, Ishmael. And, uh, and you would think that Abraham would learn his lesson, and yet, you know, we go carnal, we get afraid, we, uh, we run back to things we're accustomed to doing in the flesh. So Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Same result as before. But now there's a difference between, Abraham, or between Pharaoh and 
Abimelech. God came to Abimelech in a dream of a night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man. God never did that with Pharaoh. And it's interesting, and as far as we know, the Pharaoh of, of chapter 12 was not a believer. But this, this uh, Abimelech is. By the way, there's a puzzle here as well. If Abimelech is actually a proper name or if it's a title, it may be a title like Pharaoh. That uh, the Egyptians had their Pharaohs and the Philistines had their Abimelechs. Um, but be that as it may. God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Curious to me how Abimelech has the uh, confidence to, <laughs> to talk back to God, right? The confidence to, uh, he's not disrespectful, he's not ugly about it, but he calls him Lord, all right? And, and, and he's told that he's a dead man and he's just simply going to offer up the ignorance of his, uh, his integrity and say, I didn't know. Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? That his death would be a horrible, horrible thing for his people. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And this is language coming from a Gentile, coming from a Philistine, one of the early Philistines. We, uh, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, what their morality was like before they degenerated to the point, you know, by the time you get to Saul and David and Goliath, and in that era, the Philistines are pretty, pretty horrendous. But in this early time, uh, some thousand years before before David, um, apparently here's a band of, of Philistines that has uh, has integrity and and uh, and so and he has righteousness. We're told. So God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. Yahweh himself testifies that this king has integrity, that he is, I think he's a believer, he's a righteous man. Abraham didn't think he was, but he was. In the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. Now this is curious too. So this is, this is part of what we evaluate when we study the sovereignty of God and the volition of man. And how is it that God works through human volition? Because Abimelech wanted to touch her. He wanted to marry her. He wanted to sleep with her. I mean the things that a, that a pagan king does when he brings a woman into his harem. Alright. And so the desire that he had to add her to his harem and God understood that. He didn't coerce the volition. Just like he never coerced Jonah's volition. He just sent a storm and sent a fish and puked him on the beach and said, you know, go to Nineveh. He doesn't change Abimelech's volition. But he overrules the circumstances. Somehow, we don't know. I kept you from sinning against me. Whatever he did. I did not let you touch her. Whatever he did, we don't know the, the backstory. It'd be kind of fun to find out, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, whatever else happened that night, you know, work went late, things got busy, um, some kind of political intrigue was going on, and, and you know, by the time he uh, finally was done 
you know, ready for bed. It was just too late. He was too tired or who knows, right? Drank too much, fell asleep. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. I was supposed to bring my new wife in tonight. I, you know, we don't know. But God did not coerce his volition. He just overruled the circumstances. I think that's, that's an important point. And uh, it happens there. So he says, now therefore restore the man's wife for he is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. So this Gentile believer knows what a prophet is, knows that he's a prophet of the God that he's speaking to in this dream. If you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And now he's got a volitional choice. He can obey the voice of God and, uh, and go to the prophet and confess and restore the man's wife. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? This Gentile knows about sin. Isn't this great? That you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. You have done this to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abram, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? And Abram said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. And so when he assumed that there wasn't any there, God demonstrated, oh let me show you. Let me show you the fear of God that's here. You know, I think we do that. We get, uh, or I'll just speak for myself, I, I do that when I think that, that uh, there's not a single believer in the Austin City Council. And um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd put cash on that bet. But what do I know? Maybe, uh, maybe there is. And uh, maybe there is a believer on the Austin City Council. Maybe they, if there is, I wonder how much doctrine they have. Again, I put cash on that bet. And, uh, you know, anyway. Here I am opening myself up to God's discipline where He'll demonstrate for me. I'll show you the fear of God in this place. And then He wants to weasel out and say, besides, she actually is my sister, kind of, sort of, half-sister daughter of my father but not the daughter of my mother so you know it's not technically incest and we're just half you know we got married she became my wife anyway look forward to meeting Abimelech someday he is in heaven he is a believer let's look at Ezra 1.1 you know this principle so we have an early example in um, Genesis, and then we have these later examples. And by the time you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, boy, what an interesting period of Israel's history. And um, it's a part of the Old Testament we're not as familiar with. It's, um, it's a part because they got taken away to captivity, uh, and then they, they were allowed to return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And that stretch from, from the return to the end of the Old Testament is, is probably the, the portion of the Old Testament that, that we, I, most of us, are least familiar with. That it's, it's uh, the, the part of the Old Testament that just doesn't get taught as frequently and, and uh, we need to remedy that. But it's useful for us too. I think it's the part of the Old Testament that is the best to adapt to a church age application. Right? Because it's not Israel in their theocracy per se, uh, they don't have the Davidic throne, uh, the king of David on the throne. They're not functioning. They're functioning as aliens and strangers in a land that's not theirs when they're living in Babylon. I mean, that's kind of like us, right? We're aliens and strangers in a land that's not ours. 
And even when they're allowed to return, they don't get the Davidic throne back. They're still functioning under the dominion of the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And, and so really that era of the Old Testament is the best for us in the church to take Old Testament principles and adapt them for church age application. Anyway, Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, remember he had said 70 years you'll be in captivity, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now is he a believer yet? I think he becomes a believer. I believe he's led to a saving knowledge of, of the Jewish Messiah that he becomes a believer under the ministry of Daniel. But whether that happens right off the bat or whether that's this is still some of the preparation work that's happening, it's a curious thing to me. The Lord stirred up the spirit, the living human spirit of Cyrus. If it is living, then, then uh, he's already saved at this point. So that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... Seems to know who this is, right? He knows his name is Yahweh. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now to me, there's no way that an unbeliever is going to make a proclamation like this. That, that, that by the time this edict is issued, he's already been, uh, been saved. He's already been led to a saving knowledge of, of the Jewish Messiah has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You know, they could have brought to him a copy of the Isaiah scroll. They could have said, look, this was written in 700 B.C. This was written by the prophet Isaiah. And you were named in this scroll. Cyrus, the name of Cyrus is in the Isaiah scroll. How awesome is that? And Yahweh called him his shepherd, called him his servant. But the Lord stirred up his heart, stirred up his spirit. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So a Persian king who knows he's not a Jew, who knows that Yahweh is not the God of Persia, but he's going to bless the Jewish people. And when you bless Israel, God blesses you. That's the promise. That's the Abrahamic covenant promise. These principles are so vital. All right. So he, um, I like that phrase, stirred up the spirit. Stirred up the spirit. And God is at work. And you think about it in Proverbs, the king's heart is, in, is, is channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. It just goes so well with what we're looking at here. We need to be praying for this. As we're praying for kings and all who are in authority, pray that, uh, that, that Yahweh will be stirring up the heart, the, the uh, human spirit of our president, of our governor, of our mayor, of our um, whatever the applicable thing is. I guess in uh, where I live is Williamson County Precinct 1. I've got a commissioner. I'm going to pray for a Precinct 1 commissioner that, uh, that the Lord would stir up that person's heart. All right, Cyrus, king of Persia. I'll have to look it up later. It's in Proverbs, I mean, it's in Isaiah 40, 40 through 48, in the 40s there, where Cyrus gets named by name in the book of uh, 
of Isaiah. All right, let's go to uh, Ezra 6. Ezra 6.22. Verse 21 says, The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves. Now you'll notice this is a, an interesting chapter here. I don't want to read all of chapter 6, but just enough to get a context. I'll go full screen. You guys should have the point by now on the slide. This way I can see more. All right. King Darius issues a decree. Different decree, different king. It's basically reissuing the prior decree that Cyrus had decreed. But King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbatana, in the fortress which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and there was written in it as follows. And here's the, the, the written record. That's why it was important to put these things in writing. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt. Let its foundations be retained in its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. So as you, as you study the book of Ezra, as you study Nehemiah, as you study these things, you find repeated decrees that are issued. And this becomes vital when you're uh, studying Daniel chapter 9. You're trying to figure out which one of these is the decree that, built, that begins the 69 weeks, that begins the calendar that, uh, that was given to Daniel for the coming of Messiah and for the crucifixion of Messiah. Because it makes a difference. If you're talking about Cyrus's decree or Darius's decree or Artaxerxes first decree or Artaxerxes second decree. You have four different options that could be the kickoff of the Daniel 9 prophecies. Alright, anyway, so they find the written record of Cyrus's decree and so um, Darius reissues it, gives instructions to Tatani, the governor, and, uh, and then he gives a decree in verse 8 of his own. He's going to help fund it. He's going to provide the sacrifices. There's other aspects there. So Tatnai the governor is going to respond. And then Israel, the priests, the Levites, they're going to celebrate the dedication of this house with joy. They offer up all these bulls and rams, the sacrifices, things are going great. All right, now they're going to, now they're going to observe the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month. This is Nisan 14, just like when our Savior was crucified. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And you'll notice, so the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel, they ate the Passover. They observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Again, the, the heart of the king is uh, like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. And we have the statement there. We get to chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Alright, now we get to the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And now it's Ezra's turn to lead a group. I always remember Z-E-N, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's the order on the returnings. They, they were taken to captivity in three waves, 
They were returned from captivity in three waves. All right, now a decree. And Artaxerxes is issuing this decree, and he's giving it to Ezra, the priest, the scribe. You'll notice none of these decrees mention the walls. None of these decrees mention the, the city as a city. These are all centered on the temple. They're centered on the sacrifices. They're centered on uh, the worship. It's not until the fourth decree that the mention is made of the walls and the defensible city that uh, best fulfills the prophecy of Daniel 9. Anyway, here's a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river. That would include Judah, that would include uh, Lebanon, that would include the other trans-river provinces. And remember, Persia is east, and so they consider anything west of the Euphrates to be, you know, over there. <laughs> anyway, so he's going to fund the sacrifices, and Ezra's going to take it. Verse 27, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. You know, when a king just gets an idea, when a mood strikes him, when a fancy strikes him, when, you know, how, do, how does that get there? Who puts that idea there? Who, uh, who's shaping these things? God's shaping these things. And thank God that He does. He has extended loving kindnesses to me before the king and his counselors and before the king's mighty princes. You know, you ever make a, a, a terrible first impression and it takes ages to overcome that? Or you make a great first impression and you wonder, how did that happen? Right? And, and little do you know, uh, God's at work in this. And, and God's at work in this. And whatever it might be. And God, uh, you know, he, 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 the, the king had a good night the night before and he had a happy time with his harem or he had a, a marvelous breakfast or he had a, you know, whatever. He, he got a good a good memo in the mail and, and a good report that his armies had succeeded, whatever it was. The king is just in a great mood. And then here comes Ezra and, uh, and uh, the king says, all right, what do you want? You, you know, and he's, he's favorable. He's, he's, he's going to find grace in the eyes of the king because the king is just uh, you know, having a great day. <laughs> and whatever it may be, Ezra doesn't know, but, uh, but, the, but God's in charge of that. Okay. So he's extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And so it's a curious thing when the hand of God is at work and he's shaping the, the outcome of these events. Alright, on to Nehemiah. Nehemiah one eleven. Get from Ezra to Nehemiah. All one book, by the way, originally. Ezra and Nehemiah was a single book. Later on it got split into, into different scrolls. So the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the month Hislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity in about Jerusalem. You know, it was only about 10% of the Jewish population that even went back. Most were doing well, fat, dumb, and happy, living in Babylon and doing great. And, uh, and, and seriously, I mean, if you're, 
if, if, you're, if you've taken wives, if you're having families, if, you know, after 70 years, why go back to a land of devastation? Why go back to a land that, I mean, that's a lot of work to rebuild a, a desolate land. And unless you're spiritual, unless you're a believer with a priority for the, for the Abrahamic land grant, you know, if you, unless you're, you know, oriented to truth, what, what's the attraction of Jerusalem? So anyway, here's Nehemiah, he's among the exiles. And, uh, but he wants a report. So they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Because nothing had been done in all these decrees, three of them at this point, uh, uh, the decrees of, of Cyrus and of Darius. And uh, there have been no decrees to, uh, to defend the city, to, to build a wall. Even though they'd built the temple and they had funded the sacrifices. So they're in a, they're in a tough spot. And they're surrounded by Samaritans and they're surrounded by uh, Edomites and other groups that are hostile to what they're doing. So when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who observes, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Now who does Nehemiah think he is? I mean, does he represent the Jewish people? Is he a king? Is he in the line of David? Is he a priest? You know, he's not like he's Ezra. He's not a priest. He's not like uh, he's a scribe. Well, yeah, he is a scribe. He's secretary to the king. He's a politician. He's a servant. He's in government office. He's kind of the heir of Daniel in a lot of ways. And Daniel set the, set the tone. He set the pattern. He prayed for his nation and he confessed the sins of his nation. This is intercessory confession. Third party rebound. <laughs> if we confess our sins. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded to your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you uh, who have been scattered were in the mid most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Now Moses spoke of it, Nehemiah is claiming it. Technically it's a second advent prophecy, but it has an application in the, the, the uh, exile returning, the Zen returning. And so he's claiming the promise and he's confessing the sins. All right. So they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants, plural, who delight to revere your name. So he takes it upon himself to confess the sins of his people and he takes it by faith that there's other believers just like him that are also praying what he's praying. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know where they are. But he has to believe that they're out there somewhere. He's not pouting like Elijah saying, Elijah saying, I alone am left. 
okay? He's, uh, he's praying, and he says, there's got to be other believers praying. Listen to my prayers. Listen to the prayer of your other servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. So here's what he's saying. You, you see how powerful that is? He says, Lord, I'm cupbearer to the king of Persia. <laughs> you know, in case you didn't know that. And I'm going to go talk to the king. And if you want, you can grant me favor in the eyes of the king. I was cupbearer to the king. The steward, the cupbearer, the, the, the wine taster, the, the, uh, you know, the poison, uh, just in case the, the king's getting poisoned, you know, he's the defense. <laughs> and so here it comes. It came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king, Artaxerxes, that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. He's obeying Matthew. Matthew hadn't been written yet, but he's, he's, he's fasting in a way that is just between him and God. He's not going to make a big deal out of it, but the king notices anyway. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Because he didn't want to try to manipulate things. He wanted to be genuine before the king. So I say to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. You ever had one of those little quickie prayers when you're face to face with somebody, you know, and somebody's asking you, you know, what must I do to be saved? And you realize, oh, ooh, I, am I ready for this? And so you have that kind of real quickie prayer going, saying, Father, help me, give me the words. And and then you just, you're right there. Okay? You don't have time for a prayer meeting. You're face to face with the person that, that you're talking with. So I say to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, who was Artaxerxes' queen? Okay. Anyway, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Maybe she was praying too. You know, he said there was other people praying. So I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. That would include the troublemakers, Tatnai and some of these other troublemakers, Sanballat and, and uh, oh, I used to know all these guys, Tob, not Tobit, but Anyway, there's others. See, we're rusty on this part of our Old Testament history. But give me letters for these governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is uh, by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I must go. And the king granted them to me because of the good hand of my God was upon me. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. So I came to the governors, the provinces beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And here's the names I couldn't remember. Tobiah, that's the name I couldn't remember. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, 
they heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And they were hostile to the whole, to the whole procedure here. Anyway, this is now the decree. This is the, the decree of Artaxerxes. This is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This is the key, that we, the, the, the key detail that's missing in those earlier decrees. When you're studying the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9, it's the, uh, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be 7 and 62. All right, a couple more. We've got uh, Psalm 105 and verse 25. So the key verse we're looking at here, he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants, even anti-Semitism. You understand what this verse is saying? He turned their heart to hate his people. Wow. Context for this. Um, And you just see God's hand in all of this what he permits, what he doesn't permit. All right. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Pretty sure this is a Davidic psalm, but I'm not clear on that. All right. Make known his deeds among all the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. So it's a Hebrew psalm written in the Hebrew scriptures given to the Hebrew people but they're supposed to teach the Gentiles about calling upon the Lord and to make the Gentiles, the peoples, the Gentiles know His name. Speak of His wonders, glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. Remember His wonders which He has done as marvels and uh, the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So the covenant nation is celebrating, communicating to the Gentiles. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. This is part of our study in the fullness of times, the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. The covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, that he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When there were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them. He reproved kings for their sakes." So God had sovereignty over the Egyptians, over the Philistines, over the Ammonites, over the Moabites, over the, the Edomites, over the Aramites, over every, every uh, difficulty that they could have had. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. He called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, 
You think, what a terrible circumstance. No, Joseph was where he needed to be to save everybody's life when the famine comes. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. And the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. Now why would, the, why would Pharaoh do that? Why would Pharaoh lift him up and make him second in Egypt? Because the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. But then it's, uh, he, then they were prosperous, they were fruitful, stronger than their adversaries, and they became jealous. They became fearful. And a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. So he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. They were enslaved. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. Anyway, doing a walk through the Bible here. Then he brought them out with silver and gold, even his uh, tribes. There was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed. For the dread of them had fallen upon him. So how does public opinion swing like that? From hating them and enslaving them to happy to see them go. <laughs> okay, Thrilled, piling uh, loot and plunder and treasure. And, and uh, they, they, they came out of Egypt with the riches of Egypt. Egypt was glad when they departed for the dread of them had fallen upon them. Anyway, there's a lot there. Psalm 105. Then there's Daniel 4, but I'm out of time. In Daniel 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has to learn. Nebuchadnezzar has to learn that the Most High God is sovereign. And He bestows it on whom He wishes. God is in charge and we have the King that God wants us to have. That means when we had Obama, it's because God wanted us to have Obama. When we had Trump, it's because God wanted us to have Trump. And who are we going to get? in uh, 27 days or whatever it is, coming up in, uh, in just uh, less than a month, we're going to have whoever God wants us to have. And uh, we'll just have to pick up here next week because I've got an appointment and I can't go late. <laughs> Get out of here and scoot. Um, but in the whole process here, it's a long chapter, this is where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, this is where he lives like an animal for seven years until he learns that God's in charge. Verse 17, let's see. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. We believe these were years. Notice the mind of a man is not the mind of a beast. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is a command of the holy ones. The angels observe and the angels reflect God's judgment in human affairs in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Sometimes we get the basest of men. And that's not a good thing, but under our judgment we can be humbled and learn from it. And that's what he had to learn for seven years. He had to learn that humility. 
that the Most High God is in charge. El Elyon is his title. And so he gets the warning, and then he ignores the warning. Twelve months later, he's walking about on his roof and gets all prideful, and this is where the judgment hits. All right, well, water. can be incredibly powerful when directed to an effective purpose. And that's what, uh, that's what God does when He puts His King in there and He channels the water and here comes this blast and punching through whatever. And it's, it's destructive but powerful and God's doing what He wants to do with it. And if He unleashes a bull in a china shop it's because He wants to unleash a bull in a china shop. And uh, it's kind of curious to watch God's hand of sovereignty. All right, well, we'll pick up here next week. We got verse 2, verse 3. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. It doesn't mean it is right. It just seems right to you. And then uh, what does God want more than sacrifice? What does He want more than us to be in church? More than religious observance? More than external devotion? He wants a life that's reflective of His own standard of righteousness. So we'll, we'll have to deal with that too. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessing we have to be in your word. I thank you for the promises that we're going to get the, uh, the president you want us to have. We're going to have the House of Representatives you want us to have. We're going to have the Supreme Court you want us to have. Uh, Father, it's all in your hands. And uh, we're not fearful, but we are thankful that uh, you've blessed us. And we want to exercise our freedoms. We want to exercise our privileges. We want to vote and reflect divine viewpoint in our, in our votes. But Father, we, uh, we just humble ourselves before you and thank you for being faithful. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, appreciate your being here this morning. Keep your armor on. We'll see you next week.